0: The ultra-rich. They're getting ultra-richer, but what happens to us, the average, even the above-average American, Carol Roth, joins us today to talk about the new financial world order and the world war on your freedom and wealth. Stay tuned. I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. Yes, Carol Roth is with us. She's a former investment banker, a two-time New York Times bestselling author. She's sharing insights on economic issues as a TV pundit and a speaker, who doesn't love those two things, I know I do, coming from a blue-collar background. She passionately advocates for preserving the American dream. Welcome, Carol.
1: Yes, it's great to be here with you. And I have to say, I feel like I'm in office hours back at school, where you're like the teacher. I'm on the side, and you're going to tell me what's you know, wrong with my paper or something like
0: that. Well, it's actually going to be a little bit more of the reverse. You are the teacher. <laughs> I am the student. Fabulous.
1: How do we save the American dream? Um, it's going to be a, a deep dig because you have a bunch of elites who see that the world order is shifting. And as elites do, if you have the power and the money, you have two choices. You can sit back and go, well, I really hope things work out for me. Or on the other side, you can proactively try to control all of the resources. So when I first saw this meme go around social media, that says, you'll owe nothing and you'll be happy, and I saw it was attributed to the World Economic Forum, a, a group that's littered with the business and political elite, I thought they'd probably gotten it wrong, as people often do on Twitter. It must have been taken out of context because you know the elite would surely know that if you wanted to build wealth, if you wanted to have that American dream, you have to own things property that have the opportunity to hold value or appreciate in value, hopefully. So the idea that they're saying you'll own nothing and you'll be happy was, you know, something I really wanted to look into in terms of the American dream. But I'll, you'll note that they say, you'll own nothing, not we'll own nothing. Right. So they're going to be really good as you kind of struggle through this. Um, and then you'll be happy. And so I think that's the key to, first step to preserving the American dream is to not buy into that psyop, to not buy into that idea that Your life is going to be so much easier if you don't have to worry about buying a house. You can just rent it forever. Or if you're not investing in the stock market, you have to worry about those crazy things. They want you to believe that because then it makes it easier than if they have to force that down your throat. So I think the first step to the American dream is making sure that you go all in on ownership and ignore what these elite are saying and do the kinds of things they're doing. All right.
0: So I, I'm looking forward to beating up on the elites in a minute. I want to talk about, <laughs> about us a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, ownership is all about sort of personal responsibility, but part of personal responsibility is, uh, is taking ownership of your own sort of mistakes and, and errors of judgment. So is there anything actually wrong with the American dream? Did we ourselves actually go wrong somewhere before uh, these bad guys from the top came into the picture?
1: Well, I guess the American dream has a a connotation, right? The connotation is you own the house and you have the picket fence and you have, I don't know, 2.3 children or whatever it is. But I think it's kind of broader than that. I think it's more personal. The American dream is that opportunity for you to pursue life, liberty and happiness, whatever that means to you. And for some people, that may be accumulating lots of stuff. Um, but I do think that what wealth creation gives you is flexibility, and it gives you agency, and it gives you sovereignty, and you're not responding to somebody else. Because throughout history, the people who didn't own property, whether that be a house or something else, they were not free. They were not happy. They, in many cases, starved to death, right? I mean, this, this was this is not a good thing when people don't own stuff. Um, so I think that the idea that property is you know, really tied up in our individual rights, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, I do think everybody personally should customize that and whatever it means for them. Uh, we shouldn't necessarily follow a formula, but it's about the choice, right? You wanna have the choice. And if that choice, if you don't want that American dream, if you want something completely different, that's great for you, and I think that's the essence of capitalism, is having that freedom and that choice. The opposite of that in my book is, no pun intended, is uh, is central planning, right? And that's where you have a handful of people who dictate the outcomes, usually very opaquely, for everybody else. So it's their dream that they're kind of thrusting upon everyone else. So I don't think we've gone wrong by having freedom. I think where we've gone wrong is by letting people do too much of the planning and getting away from that idea of freedom, choice, exchange, property rights, transparency that is the essence of what the founders built for us. It's so unique that everybody from all around the globe wants to come here and participate in that.
0: Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's interesting. The original draft language in, in the Declaration was life, liberty, and property. Property, right. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, heaven forfend, I, I take away anyone's good time, but right. uh, there's something, you know, admirably specific and concrete about that language. Uh, and I think you're right, you know, if, if you, you say yes, go, go forth, be happy, and I think the reality is, People over time may come to think that what's going to make them happiest is surrendering responsibility to some faraway experts who are just going to kind of like optimize everything for them. And that's not really the way it worked out.
1: I mean, it's it's human nature, right? They're going to say, we're doing this for the children. It's for the good of other people. In fact, one of the... the uh Twilight Zone episodes that I reference in my book is one that's called To Serve Man. And it's about aliens who come down and, you know, they, they come to Earth and they say they just want to help everyone out. They're here to serve man. They want to help with the wars and the famines. And they decode, uh, someone from the CIA decodes the book they leave behind. It says to serve man. They go, it's a noble cause. Well, it turns out they decode more and later to serve man is a cookbook. So that's what I always think about, is when anyone says they're here to serve you, it's a cookbook. And when you think about that in the realm of something as simple as owning a house, you know, owning a house is the largest asset on Americans' balance sheets across the country. And that's how many Americans have the opportunity to create wealth and to pass it on to their family. So if you give that up, as you know wall street's trying to get you to do they're now competing with you to buy a house and you know oh it's going to be so much easier for you not only are you giving up that wealth creation opportunity but you're giving up the sovereignty and the agency that comes with this is my home and i can do whatever i want and coming out of the last few years where we've seen some of the the mandates and the the, uh, the the dictates that have come down, it's not hard to think, OK, well, they don't want gas stoves. Well, it's going to be hard to get me to get my gas stove out of there. But if a Wall Street corporation owns all the houses and they make a deal with the government, that's much easier. Maybe they say you can't own a gun or you can't have ammunition. You give up so much agency when you're under somebody else's Domain, so to speak. So I think that people need to really reframe the way that we've thought about these ideas that are kind of, you know, almost taken for granted in our lives.
0: Yeah, I mean, just just a couple of decades ago, I think, really, um, the the big debate was over whether or not these kind of Central planners off somewhere else really existed, and yeah, I right. think now you know at least we've come to a moment where kind of everyone agrees that they're there, and yeah. I think those guys have been a lot more forward and a lot more confident in revealing themselves and their plans and everything. Um, but now the debate is sort of like, are they are they evil? Do they really think that they're helping? You know, is this are, have they consumed their own Kool Aid and believe that they are actually the the only the only power in the world that can save the world? Uh, where do yeah. you come down on that?
1: So I think the answer is yes. (laughs) Across the spectrum, there are some of of them that are inherently evil. There are some of them that, you know, maybe think they're so smart that they know better than everyone else. I think most of this is just human nature, that human nature goes in cycles. We think that your know, technology evolves and our surrounding evolves and that we're these enlightened beings, and we're not, we're just human and they have the same drives and we make the same mistakes over and over again, which is why, you know, it's always said that history rhymes, right? Um, so I think that you have these central planners um, who, you know, who are trying to gain power, they're trying to gain wealth for themselves. And as I said, we're seeing the world order change, also not another conspiracy theory. The president of the United States has said this, it's on the White House's website, there's going to be a new world order out there and we have to lead it this changes all the time and so i think that is creating a panic and it's why it's happening now in a different way than it maybe would have you would have looked at this 30 years ago because things are different and they're shifting and they really want to make sure that they are in charge so as that has happened and they've crafted new ways of making sure that they secure that power and that money for themselves You know, it plays out differently depending on where we are in the cycle. If you think about, you know, these these powers that you said that are revealing themselves, you know, take something just like central banking, like the, the Federal Reserve, and the damage that they have done, just you know, Not only from the time that they've existed, 1913, but the acceleration of that over the last 15 years with their easy money policy, with suppressing interest rates, with adding $9 trillion to their balance sheet, completely disrupted risk, transferred trillions of dollars in wealth from Main Street to Wall Street— but it's done so opaquely that like everyone's like I know things aren't working but I'm not really sure like why and they're blaming everything else you know the average americans not like oh well it's the federal reserve and its monetary policy and obviously this is the the source of the issue and we need to fix that but it's been very clever in the way that they've been able to move wealth without sort of the average person seeing it. So, you know, are they they're doing that as I said, I think just basically human nature, it's not like they're sitting around the table like Dr. Evil with their finger in their mouth going, how are we going to screw these people? It's more of like how do we get more for ourselves and if these people, you know, don't get as much well, you know, that's not that big of a problem.
0: Well, you use the P word panic, and I think that's really important. You know, the language of crisis has been with us now for so long. Yes. People are getting really burned out on the rhetoric of crisis. They're yeah. like, yes, we know, welcome to my life. Yeah. Every yeah. day is a crisis. Right. Um, but panic is not used as much. And I think, like, the socioeconomic and, and financial elites are very um, comfortable with talking about crisis and yeah. getting people to think in terms of crisis when what's really going on is. A panic is a series of panics. It used to be, I mean, you go back through economic history, financial history in the US, and all the panic of, what was it, like 1828 or right, something, right, right. right? Like this was an accepted way of understanding an economic phenomenon where you have this kind of whipsawing instability in yeah. the system that is the result of incorrect or sort of abusive policies. And it does create panic. It isn't just sort of, oh, things are, it's a, uh, you know, there's a Chinese That's character funny. for this that means yeah. we can also, get, it's a panic. <laughs> Nobody knows what's going on, and there's this kind of scramble. Um, and I think that's that we're seeing this play out right now so profoundly where you know, interest rates were like, maybe we'll go negative, and then fast forward a few years, and it's like, now they're 10% almost. This induces panic in people because it creates this knowledge that expect the unexpected. You don't know what's gonna happen, but you know it's gonna be bad. How do you break that cycle?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting, right, because they almost create that yeah. so that they can come in and say, we're the ones who can fix this. And it's like, I would say, it's like the arsonists who set your house on fire, and then they show up with their water bottles like, hey, I'm here to put out your fire. So like they're not acknowledging they're the ones that set it out on fire, and they don't have the tools available to actually change it. It's almost a form of racketeering, isn't it? It is. It's 100%. I, racketeering or profiteering, if you want to be kinder and gentler about it. Maybe you don't. Maybe you want to just call it racketeering. Um, but I think you know it's it's interesting. We live in a time where we see these protests on a day to day basis about like kind of everything. And I keep hearing that the economy is the biggest issue for voters, the biggest issue in people's lives. Like, when's the last time you saw a, a peaceful but forcible protest on the Fed? on Congress, on the Treasury saying, you know, you are absolutely crushing the middle and working class, enough's enough if you go back to the 70s, you know, when there was this huge inflation, there was a, a huge awareness about the role of money printing and, you know, what was happening. You had car dealers who were mailing the keys of unsold cars back to the Fed. You had home builders who were taking lumber and, you know, dropping it on the on the door in front of the building saying, we can't build houses. And there was like a, an organic movement. And I don't know why people, maybe there's just no community organizers in the financial realm, I I just don't know what it is, but I've never seen people get really angry because there's so much moral hazard in the system that unless the people who are those middle people, the, the politicians, feel like they're really in jeopardy, they're not going to do anything, right? They're, they're all benefiting. Their cronies are benefiting. So until we really put it to them and say, you know, this actually is an important issue to us and we're, we're going to march in the streets until something's done, I don't think there's any incentive for them to change. And if you go back to Charlie Munger— Show me the incentive, and I'll show you the outcome, and that works across you know everything, including with our politicians.
0: Well, these policies have been effective in demoralizing people and in disconnecting them from Correct. from community, from family. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people who are just on their own, single, of of any age, you know, no children, yeah. no, maybe even you know, grandparents uh, are are out of the picture. Um, community ties are, are weak, yeah. especially coming out of COVID, people just kind of disappearing into their phones. When you're that disconnected from real flesh and blood human life, you're not going to be taking to the streets. You're not going to be mailing keys back to the Fed. You're just going to kind of be doom scrolling, right?
1: Yeah, you're going to tweet about it. You're going to have a hashtag, yeah. call it Bidenomics TM, and then, you know, okay, I've, I've said my piece. It's it's a tough time, and I do feel um, particular for the younger generations who are so demoralized, they keep coming up with new phrases for things. First, it was quiet, quitting. Now they're doing soft saving. And soft saving is, I'm just not saving for retirement. I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to enjoy it. I just will never retire, which, going back to where we started this conversation— It's all about flexibility. If you are not retiring by choice, that's awesome. And I'm a big advocate of not retiring. I think that work is good for people and keeps you sharp and whatnot, but that should be your choice. It shouldn't be because you have to work. It also stands in the face of what Albert Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world, which is compound interest, right? Those who understand it earn it and those who don't pay it. And so you, these young people who are exactly the people who should be focused on this and figuring out, okay, what needs to change? How do I invest? They've given up. They've given up on saving for retirement. They've given up on home ownership. They're not sure how they're gonna pay down these student loans that didn't give them any ROI and it's transferred wealth directly from them to college administrators. So you know, perhaps there is an opportunity to try to, to say to Gen Z and, and younger people, you are the hope to take back our country and the American dream, but you got to get off your phone and you got to get off and, and, and really we'll work with you, but, but we want you to have this because this, that's the whole point. Like I participated in the American dream. What a huge gift it is. Like I feel like I need to preserve that for people who come after me, for people all around the world because there's no other opportunity like this anywhere else in the country or in the world.
0: You must start taking care of your liver, now more than ever. Why? Because the latest data from the American Heart Association indicates that adults with fatty liver were 3.5 times more likely to have heart failure than those without. The American Liver Foundation says that 100 million Americans have fatty liver, which means many people are at risk. We throw everything at our livers—cholesterol, alcohol, toxins, Tylenol, statins, cigarettes— That's why so many of us have a sluggish, fatty liver that makes us gain weight and lose energy. For decades now, your liver has helped you with over 500 key functions every day. It's time you help your liver. There is a solution, Liver Health Formula, an all-natural supplement which contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that help recharge and protect your liver. Manufactured right here in the USA and approved by American doctors. You can try Liver Health Formula and receive a free bottle of nano-powered omega-3 to keep your heart healthy too. It's a 64% discount in total. Order today at getliverhelp.com james and claim your free gift. That's getliverhelp.com james. Even if people get off their phones, even if people move out of that micro apartment in San Francisco and go <laughs> right. find some, some real community, Uh, You know, the best case scenario might still be we just kind of walk it back to to 1978 or whatever and play the tape forward again. So we're not really, you know, it may be necessary to to overcome the disenchantment, overcome the disconnection. In order to get all the way to sufficient, you do need structural change, right? Absolutely. Is that going to come from collapse of the system? Can it be reformed at this point?
1: So the answer is it can be. I think the the question that you're sort of asking underneath that is, do we have the will to reform it? And I'm not nearly as optimistic about that because I don't think we have the mechanisms built in the system for the accountability that's required to change that. Um, If you think about the way that we have to pay for things, and one of them is to increase taxes, one of them is to increase the debt, And at the debt levels that we're at today, uh, there aren't enough buyers. So monetize the debt, debase our money, and means your purchasing power is less today, or in the future, than it was today, or to you know cut back spending and these promises, and say you were lied to. There's no way we can fulfill that. Um, You know, two of those impact us, you know, really directly, but don't really impact the, the, the politicians. One of those really impacts the politicians, and that's the the, the reform of the system. So that's the one they're probably not going to do, and that's the one we need them to be doing. We need them to have a—we we need some leader t- who has the cojones to come out and say, listen, you've been lied to. You're going to pay for this one way or another. Let me explain how this is going to work. We're going through the path of least resistance so that you will have the best opportunity going forward. And, you know, it won't just be the elite getting rich and and you getting poorer. And we're going to barbell the whole economy. We want everybody to participate in that American dream. Is that likely to take place? I mean, we saw what happened in in France when they raised the retirement age just two years. I think it was 62 to 64, and they burned down Paris. Does somebody have the fortitude to come out you know, in the united states and try to explain this to people when you know you've got politicians all around them that are going to say oh that's not the case they're just trying to take away your social security the republicans hate medicare this person hates you know whatever it is um, to have that honest conversation that would really be of your three choices in your monty hall the three doors the door that you want to pick with the big prize I just don't know that we are in a place where that's realistic, but it can happen. So I guess that's the 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 thread of optimism we have here is it can, and we need to keep trying. Does that mean it gets done? The realistic perspective is probably not.
0: So is there anyone out there, public life, private life, business, politics, who you think is is at least potentially going to be one of those leaders who can lead us out?
1: I mean, I think the the good news is there are people um, having conversations like the one that you're having. I mean, that's your platform that you have and the fact that we're able to have this conversation and and inform more people who hopefully will you know, talk to people in their community is, you know, the decentralization of these discussions. And then if we can get that wherewithal, maybe eventually at some point, it, you know, something happens that people say, well, yes, we need to put that leader in play. But like, do I see that like specific Messiah-like person right now? I don't have anyone, ident- one person identified. And it really, I think, is going to need to be more than one person. One person is maybe the face of it, but you need to have the conviction, um, you know, throughout the government, throughout Congress to be able to, to make these changes and to shepherd them and to be strong. Um, in the face of the resistance that's naturally going to come about from it.
0: Yeah. I, uh, let's talk about tech a little bit. Sure. Because I think, you know, if, if, I, if I'm trying to be as sympathetic as I can be to uh, to the elites and willing to consider that they find themselves in a certain kind of predicament too. Um, a lot of these folks, you know, Henry Kissinger's pretty old. Some of them are are, are just <laughs> as old. That's generous.
1: He's pretty old. He's pretty
0: old. He's he's <laughs> pushing pushing 100. <laughs> um but a lot of these folks are not that old and they haven't been around forever and they're you know they are trying to suck up the most talented folks to kind of make sure that the machine doesn't blow up on their watch and they've inherited a lot of garbage and right. you know a lot of a lot of cans have been kicked down the road uh a lot of uh fundamentally broken economic policies and financial policies have been kind of hard coded into the system and if you're you know, still relatively uh, green behind the ears and ascend to, the, to that level of, of upper management, you must be sitting there thinking like, how am I gonna, what am I gonna do? Right. I don't wanna be the one right. who's in charge when it all blows up. So what's someone like that thinking about how to present themselves to the public as maybe not the ideal leader but at least someone you shouldn't sort of like storm the castle and you know get out the guillotine or the pitchfork whatever what do you say and what you say i think is don't blame me <laughs> blame the technology Look, like there's a technological arms race all the time, and if the United States isn't leading, and if the United States isn't the worldwide leader in innovation, right. it's gonna be one of the bad guys, and you wouldn't want that to happen, so we're innovating on technology, and guess what? it comes with some trade-offs. And some of those trade-offs are we have to keep changing the system. And in some cases, we have to change the system a little bit faster than exactly we know what we're doing. We kind of have to make it up as we go along. You talked about having the will to change the system. Well, you know, one source of the will to that kind of change is you're an egomaniac or you're a megalomaniac <laughs> right. or you're just so naive that you think like, well, we'll, we'll figure it out when we get there. There's a good version of that, which is what used to be prominent in America, where Americans were competent and confident in their relationship to their technology. Well, we'll just kind of dump all this junk out on the table and figure out how to, how to piece it together because we have kind of a culture of competence. That's gone, <laughs> as some of the elites still think they have it. So I think their argument is like, look guys, you know, we, we have to be on top of the heap. And being on top of the heap can be a little crazy, it can be a little panic inducing, uh, but ultimately there are costs, and one of those costs is gonna fall on you guys because you're just not as smart as we are. And so, like it or not, we're gonna have to drag you in sort of leadership in the the painful sense where, you know, we don't know where we're going, but gosh darn it, we're gonna take you there because there's nobody else who can do it. How much of all this pain that we're going through really is just a consequence of these wrenching changes in technology, the way that technology keeps changing finance, the way technology keeps changing. The Fed keeps changing interest rates. People talk about the the printer going burr and it's not a printer anymore. No, it's, it's just a digital. button. Right, yeah. And You just push the button and you keep adding zeros. This is a fundamentally different form of economic life and the way that the dollar is being digitized, all of these changes. Is this really the root of the problem?
1: So I don't think it's the root of the problem. I think it's an accelerant of the problem. I think that the root of the problem is the basic misalignment of incentives and the moral hazard that is built in the system. And the people who make these decisions do not have to bear the cost. They do not have to bear any sort of accountability. So it is to their benefit to do what makes sense for them. I think that's that's base case. What technology does, and like you said, you know, when we went from having hard money to, you know, fiat currency to now we can just make things up as we go along because everything is, is quote unquote digitized, to the horrible thought of something like a central bank digital currency, it just allows for more and more control in the hands. Hands of uh, a handful of people in a very easy, scalable fashion. And so the more that you have that scalability, and if you have enough of the population that's willing to buy into whatever promise comes along with that, um, the worse off it is for them. And we saw that during COVID. You know, things like you know, social credit, in order to formally implement that, instead of informally at the state level, you need the technology that can collect all the data on everyone. Well, we certainly have that, and then we proved that we have a, a populace that's willing to turn in their neighbor because they didn't get a shot or isn't wearing a mask or has a fake, you know, vaccination card or whatever it is. So I think that both of the components there um, give the ability for you know even more centralized control. On top of that, we have this very interesting battle um, where tech in, in, in and of itself has become sort of a de facto government. And we have this constitution that protects our rights theoretically, enshrines our God-given rights, um, and protects them from the government. But it doesn't do that in the digital sphere. And you have these companies that are taking over um, you know, our property and our agency and our speech. And we have no digital rights protection. So I think that might be a piece of where, like, if we're looking at this crazy shifting puzzle and going, oh my God, you know, w- which piece do I put in place next? Because there's so many things that I can do. You know, maybe that's the right move for everyone is to really focus on how do we get these constitutional rights that, you know, are our God given rights protected against these big technology firms so that we can have that more level playing field and we don't just have a handful of people making decisions it's just a different handful of people making those decisions and you know yes technology is wonderful and has improved our lives but at the same time you know I'm an IP creator I don't want AI being trained on my work and then getting none of the benefit and none of the credit for it. So I think things like that, um, because we are on this precipice with all of this you know, interesting technology that's moving so quickly, is a is a potentially interesting place to start.
0: I think you're absolutely right about all this. I've, I've written about it. And I'm going to continue to write about it. Uh, if you are not American when you are online, then you cannot be American. Yeah. And there is, a, there is a huge hole here, and the Biden administration is happy to sail through. They know exactly what they want to do. Yeah. They want social credit, they want uh, CBDC, yep. they want basically to nationalize uh, as many of these technologies, including cryptocurrency, that they can get their hands on. Um, and they're, they're openly just laying it all out. It's all a matter of public record. And uh, you know, FCC is, is going on a huge power grab right now. Um, and our guys are sort of, you know, still trying to figure out like, uh, like what a hashtag is. I mean, it's, <laughs> right. it's a little dismaying. So I, I do think, you know, there, I think the, the, the time for dig, whether it's digital rights act, digital rights amendment at the state level, if you can't get it done at the federal level, there are states, whether it's you know Florida, Texas, and Arizona, yep. even like in Arkansas or Wyoming, there are states where where we can move on this kind of legislation. Um, I've talked to folks uh, at the state and federal level. There's interest there. Um, it's uh, it's it's worth doing. It needs to be done. Um, I'm I'm you know committed to doing whatever I can to move that ball along. For ordinary people, however, there's an objection, and the objection is. I salute you trying to pass common sense legislation that's going to make sure that America is America on the Internet. But in the meantime, like, I have no wealth.
1: Right. I can't can't buy my groceries. It doesn't
0: matter what I'm earning. Even high earners. I have no wealth. I'm still, you know, net net worth negative. Um, What can people do? to actually build some wealth yeah. starting right now so that by the time we you know, unfubar this situation, they're not uh, on the breadlines.
1: Yeah, so obviously, first, I, I just want to acknowledge that this has been a really difficult time for people. Um, the media, the Biden administration, they say, oh, the rate of inflation is slowing. Why don't you think the economy is great? And it, it's such just a kick in, in the gut um, to people who are, who are experiencing this and then you know, being gaslit about it and saying, no, you're in a fantastic financial position. You know, you have less savings, you have more credit card debt, your personal balance sheets have been destroyed, your 401k is now a 201k, whatever it is, but you're doing great. And um, every
0: transaction over $600, we're gonna <laughs> monitor and log where that money's going.
1: For Because of the billionaires, because yeah, of the greedy, right. we wanna make sure that the greedy billionaires pay because they have lots of $600 transactions mm-hmm. across accounts. Um, so, I think that, you know, people are struggling, and when I say, like, it's time for austerity, people are going to say, "Why? Well, I'm already being austere and I can't afford it, and I'm not downplaying the situation, but I'm going to say there are places that you can cut back and you need to figure out, you know, what subscription you have? You know, do you have a storage locker where maybe you, you forgot, like, okay, I'm paying um, you know, hundreds of dollars a month. And do I really need that to be there? Um, you know, maybe I need to work a few more hours, whatever it is to either increase your revenues or to decrease your expenses so that you can build up some more Wealth today. I think it's critical. I think you need to have an emergency fund for at least 12 months, given what potentially is ahead of us. Then, if you do have capital, it's really important. And you know, this is not financial advice, but it's also um, you know not groundbreaking financial advice either, because it's you know what I would tell you probably anyway. But it just has a different lens and a different urgency right now is to have a very well-diversified portfolio. Because we can see the trajectory, but one thing we never know in finance is the timing. And things can happen in different uh, um, scenarios and different timing. This is how short sellers get crushed. There are people who know a company is eventually going to go bankrupt, and they short the stock. And then the stock goes up, and they get crushed, and then eventually it goes go bankrupt because they had the timing wrong. So you have to be prepared no matter what the timing is and having that well diver- diversified portfolio. But over time, as we talk about things like you know, agency, the the central bank digital currency, the fact that the Fed's debasing the dollar, you want to have hard assets. You want to have the home, you want to have land, you want to have physical precious metals, things in a form factor you can control if you're fortunate to be one of those people who does have more money, maybe you're looking at, you know, arch or, you know, Birkin bags or, you know, whatever it is. But those are the things that it's going to be much more difficult for them to debase the value. And in fact, usually what happens as the, you know, Purchasing power of the dollar goes down against these kinds of hard assets. Those assets actually are what are the stores of value. So I do think that having that lens over time, um, you know, assets that can store and appreciate in value, a wide range of them, and make sure some portion of those are hard assets.
0: Do You have precious metals. I do. Do you have crypto? I do not. Are you are you a, a hater? Are you ever going to so go I'm not. Bitcoin? I'm not a hater.
1: So this is what I'll say about it: um, is that The people who believe in crypto, particularly Bitcoin, um, have the same thesis as the people who believe in precious metals. It's a different way of things happening. My father always taught me that if you don't understand something inside and out, you don't invest in it. So I'm really good. I can tell you what a restaurant chain is. I can tell you what a gold chain is. Blockchain, I could probably fudge my way around it, but, you know, not quite as well as the others there are some fundamental things about it, whether it be quantum computing or, you know, we're in a, a war and all the electricity, the electricity grid goes down. What what happens? I just kind of can't get my head wrapped around. But I, I'm not the expert on that. You should talk to somebody who's the expert about that. So I don't hate it because the thesis is correct. And I understand why people are doing it. But the way that I would prefer to go into that thesis are things like for medium of exchange, to have the physical precious metals, and for stores of value, things that are more like land.
0: Yeah, well, I'm definitely a, a land guy, I'm definitely <laughs> a, a gold guy, but I also love an opportunity to talk
1: about this book, Human <laughs> Forever by James <laughs>
0: So this is a book that is for sale on a website called Canonic, canonic.xyz, and on Canonic, This book was published onto the Bitcoin blockchain and for sale in Bitcoin. And here's why I did that. Um, There's a popular attitude in the Bitcoin community, the BTCers, uh, which is number go up. Everyone get Bitcoin, the the value will go up. We'll just sit on our our mountaintop and achieve Nirvana. We all become rich, (laughs) the uh, Fed dies, uh, the, the fiat system collapses, and we win. Um, You know, it's uh, not a totally implausible theory. However, uh, there are objections, and one of them is the one that you raise. I don't really know what I'm doing. Should I really be investing? Is this investing? Is this this not just speculation? Uh, And those are fair fair criticisms. Um, And I also think, you know, at the end of the day, there is something not exactly American about wanting to create a financial system where you do nothing and get rich right? You just kind of hold the magic thing, and the magic thing produces the, magic wealth. His, and
1: historically, that has not worked out as a philosophy over longer right, periods of time. It doesn't work very well,
0: right? and doesn't really jive with this very deeply American idea <laughs> that if you want to build wealth, you got to sweat. you got to get out there, mix your hands in there with whatever it is that you're working on, get although, your hands although dirty. Although taking
1: risk is a legitimate way to create of course, wealth. so absolutely. that so So risk, risk-taking has wealth. Opportunities attached to it, so. right? So
0: the story about the book is, I didn't do the book uh, on on chain. I didn't sell it for Bitcoin, make it a Bitcoin exclusive. I didn't do that just for the sake of I I get the coin, the, the number goes up, yeah. I live happily ever after. I did it to make a point, and the point is, you don't need to be an expert in in Bitcoin to use it, not as a speculation, not as an investment, but as a medium of exchanging goods and services. Right. Totally outside. I mean, now these you know the claws are out and Feds are pulling it in. Right. But two years ago when this came out, basically totally outside the realm of the New York publishing industry the Fed, right? Uh, c- cancellation mobs. Um, everyone at the sort of elite or institutional yes. layer who says, you can't say that in a book right. in 2021. You have to edit it or we're not putting the book out. You just sidestep all that stuff and do it in a way where human beings who are interested in preserving our form of government, preserving our way of life, preserving our humanity can once again get their hands on a fundamental digital technology and actually get their hands dirty and use it to strengthen all of those things instead it. of undermining them.
1: I love, it. and I love the fact. I'm assuming you still own the rights to the book, yeah, I got which everything. is great. And it's great, you not only for what we're talking about ownership of things, including intellectual property, but it also means that a publisher who comes along in the future does go well. I don't really like what he said, so we're just going to go change the contents inside 100%. of it as well. So I, I think that's actually quite interesting.
0: Yeah, and you know, there's a way if you're if you're super dedicated and you have a. a Amazon tier number of, of servers, and you just want to take all the compute that you can get together and try to just brute force 51% attack on Bitcoin so you can get in there and, you know, delete a few words in my book. Someone, some entity could could do that, but um, I think you look at the feds and they'd rather just kind of claim uh, claim that power rather than try to overthrow it. So that's an example. I think, you know, there yeah. there is... Um, there is a way that Americans can get involved in technology right now where they can do some of that work to, to pull, decentralized the power a little bit, get, get people working again. Um, if, you're, if your interaction with technology is just to stare at the screen and watch bad things happen to you, you know, that itself is very un-American, yeah. historically. Americans, people, you get under your car, pull some things, figure it out, dump the stuff on the table, figure out how to solve the problem. Uh, we need to restore that kind of attitude, that kind of competence to our relationship with technology. And uh, it's a little difficult to do that through AI. You know, I know there's a lot of talk about AI right now, and how it's going to like sort of change everything or whatever. Uh, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But there is kind of this dependency relationship. Yeah, um, that's uh, that's not what's going on with Bitcoin or with what Bitcoin can do. And so I have some hope there. Um, well,
1: well, this is, and this is exactly why you know, I'm very neutral on it, and you did a much better job of explaining why this is exciting. Now I'm pumped. I'm like, okay, this is great. Then I could have, and I think that's important in these discussions too. We cannot be a domain expert on every single thing, and so we have to let the people who are. Um, you know, I can't be one day. Oh, I'm really into this, and oh no no no, this this week I'm into that. I know that's very fashionable on social media, but in like the real realm of expertise. Uh, It's much better coming from somebody like you, I think.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, we we all have a part to play. Um, There is a chance that next year we will have a new administration (laughs) in the White House.
1: A new one and an old one that looks new. An old old one one that looks old but is new. But isn't
0: the one that's there right now. Yes. There is a chance. I'm not going to. To, to, to Handicap- venture, You're not handicapping it yes. right now? No, not handicapping. <laughs> there is a chance that um, a new team is going to come in and say, you know what, all these executive orders on tech stuff are going to go away. Right. The IRS <laughs> is going to shrink back down. Um, happy days are here again. Um, if that happens, uh, do you think Americans are going to have enough time and enough energy to get back on their feet?
1: Well, certainly um, to some extent, things go in cycles. Mm-hmm. And so I do think next year is going to be a challenging year, perhaps more than people are prepared for, which is why I say emergency fund of 12 months instead of you know maybe the six to nine that people are, are used to. Um, and I do think there will be a cycle. I think what people aren't prepared for are the kind of macro cycles. You know, we just came out of 15 years that was just historic manipulation by the Fed, unprecedented. And the last 15 years did a lot of things that can't happen to, again um, without things really going haywire because of the financial position of the U.S. right now, unless something else comes to play, like, God forbid, a war, you know, other mechanism for a financial reset or whatever it is. So I think that, you know, my messaging here is that I wouldn't expect the next 15 years to look like the last 15. When you think about you know the cycle of getting back on your feet, do I think that we're going to have like the same okay, just you know cheap money and it's easy and everybody can go out and invest in in these things and it's great. And I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Not to say that we're not going to go back into QE because I do think that's a very realistic possibility, just given the the buffet of options that we have that we talked about previously. Um so there will be opportunities but it's going to be harder than before. And I think people need to mentally prepare for that because they're going to go well the last time around this was so easy and if you just did these things then you know these people you know did well and I don't think that blueprint can be replicated in the next 15 years so yes you'll have the opportunity um, probably not in 2024 but you know through some cycle after the the bad stuff moves away hopefully to to get back on your feet Um, but it's going to be with probably less upside potential and things a little bit more normalized which by the way isn't necessarily a bad thing i think we want it to be more normalized i just think the expectations are perhaps overhyped because of the last 15 years.
0: Well, I think there's a fear that there's no other way to thrive in yeah. America. Uh, for so long, it was buy the house, buy the house, interest rates so low, lock it in, yeah. come on, baby. And then <laughs> right. 2008 happened and that kind of blew up, but it bounced back pretty quick in it's the it. grand scheme of things. It. Um, and I think there was a lot of sort of like torquing the levers to get it to bounce back there. Um, I keep an eye on, uh, on the housing situation in the Phoenix metro area, and here's why. Uh, Phoenix is now, uh, I think, the fifth largest city in America, uh, probably one of the reddest. Uh, you got Houston down there, but I think Houston yeah. is almost its own planet, yeah. uh, sitting there at, at number two now, I think, at this point. Uh, and so, what's going on in Phoenix? Uh, you get a big influx of people, uh, you get a huge uh, you know, real estate boom yep. in uh, in Phoenix, Scottsdale, outlying uh, areas. Uh, in some cases, you know, you go on Zillow and just uh, the, the tears brimming in my eyes, watching like you know, bought in yeah, right. twenty eighteen <laughs> for two hundred and fifty, and then the house right? sold yeah, right, yeah. in twenty twenty one for two point five. 2.5. Million, right, right, just yeah. just truly, truly terrifying. Um, but there's you know, there's a the dark side, which is um, Airbnb went nuts in Scottsdale. And now you have a lot of people who just can't fill those homes. Yeah. And now they're starting to go like, well, wait a minute. Like, Do I pay the mortgage? Do I put it on the market? Do I sit it out? Do I wait? Do I sort of deplete yeah. my savings hoping that the Airbnb market? Like you've got this kind of confluence of all these factors where it's like lots of people moving to a new spot yeah. because blue state economies are failing. Um, lots of hope riding on the app economy, the gig economy. Oh, I'll just flip it. I'll just put it on Airbnb. Right. Um, and then you got people who uh, have the means to kind of enter into that. Mm, maybe it's speculation, maybe it's investment, maybe we'll see what happens. Uh, but just over the past, you know, I think in, in many cases, just the past 12 months, uh, it's crunch time for these folks and it's all in flux. Do you see situations like that as becoming more common? Do you think that people are gonna, is, is this the kind of thing that's gonna clarify for good or for ill over the next 12 months?
1: I think, 12, 12 to 18 months, I would say. Um, some, something is going to have to give there, and I do think that particularly in those areas where there is a large um, Airbnb purchasing situation going on, I think that those people are going to end up probably giving up at some point in time and going, this, you know, I, I've held out, this isn't working, and maybe that's kind of one of the ways that gets the supply back into the market. I think the biggest challenge is that we need a few other things to kind of fall into place. Um, One of them is hopefully at the the state and local level, people putting some more pressure on because, because we've had this increase in the value of property A sneaky way that we're all being burdened by that is the increases in things like property taxes and insurance that comes with this paper wealth. All of a sudden, you have something where Zillow says now it's worth far more, and you're now incurring all of these additional costs, even though you're not necessarily benefiting from that. So, you know, that could be something— also, the mortgages—you know—the the, the greater part of Americans have mortgages that are locked in under five percent. A large proportion, you know, a, you know, three and a half percent. We're sitting at like eight, whatever percent mortgages right now. Even if you have all of this this wealth in your house and you can sell it, you're going to go well. I have to buy something at an inflated price now. I have a higher mortgage. How does that work? So some piece of that. I think eventually is going to crack and something will go and will give people an opportunity. However, we are undersupplied in terms of housing, I mean, just by millions of units. And so if we don't get more building happening, which obviously because of the macro situation a lot of builders are sort of resistant to to Russian doing. Um, We need something to give that's going to put more supply in to feed the demand that's certainly there in the market.
0: Are you concerned that the new wave of building that is going on is just not going to work for family formation?
1: Well, certainly there are a lot of things around the market. One is Wall Street coming in and competing with single-family homes. Um, two are the you know the types of units that are being built, um, and I think just the the costs of living in general are making people push out all kinds of life cycle decisions. You know, whether it's buying a house or starting a family. You know, funny enough, it actually financially typically benefits people to form a family because now you've got two people who are paying for something, and that usually works out financially better than your two people having two single units and doubling up on everything. Um, but it, that is a psychological change, and I think that a lot of the young people, because of all the the issues we've talked about today, um, are you know, paralyzed by that and going, you know, is this really something that I can do and I can afford? and you know it does create a tenuous situation there
0: who was it who said buy when there's blood in the streets i think one of the rockefellers probably probably <laughs> do, you, do you think that's right do you think that's what's going to happen or that well that's what i mean it's do? sort
1: of the, i think warren buffett is always it's sort of the kinder gentler version of that <laughs> right is that you want to be greedy when everyone else is fearful and fearful when everyone else is greedy um, i you know kind of on the thesis of the book you know you'll own nothing versus the will own nothing I always look to see what the elite are doing, right? Where are they putting their money? If they're going in and trying to buy up the stuff, you know, that's like okay. Well, maybe I should be following them in there. If they're sitting with their cash on the sidelines, that's probably sending a signal. Not that they're always right 100% of the time, but you know, they may have a, a better a better sense of what's going on in terms of the um, you know the financial uh, opportunities out there. But it's yeah. I think I think when when things go the wrong way um, and everybody is is panicking to to our earlier point, it's often a good time to you know not a guarantee, but often a good time to say okay, you know this this might make sense for me now.
0: And there's still no better place to park your cash than in the dollar, right? <laughs>
1: In the dollar, <laughs> well, re- relative to other currencies. Well, I mean, it, it's uh, I call it the skinniest kid at fat camp, right? right? There, are some people <laughs> call it the cleanest shirt in the laundry. Um, I would say, you know, the, I would say something like uh, a dollar proxy, like a Treasury bill, like a short-term um, Treasury is a great thing to do, because you don't want to just have dollars sitting around. If you have dollars sitting around under your mattress, you know that's just getting debased every day and has you know, less purchasing power. You want to have that working for you. So even if you might need that money in a month, you, know, you can go in and you can buy a one-month T-bill or a two-month T-bill or some other money market product, and right now you're yielding over 5% on an annualized basis. So you have to, if you have just money that's sitting, you have to be putting that to work for you and you know, take your liquidity needs into account. But to just have it sitting in a dollar, like that's not a, a good thing to be doing.
0: For years, Hollywood has been lacking when it comes to stories of redemption. Movies and TV shows have trended toward the anti-hero, the flawed person who makes no effort to change and just becomes worse and worse as the story goes on. Well, here's some great news. The Blind, the true story of the Robertson family, is now available for purchase on Blaze TV. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. Maybe someone you love is in a dark place. Maybe all of the above. If you or someone you know feels beyond redemption, you need to watch this movie. You'll see there is always hope, always. The Blind takes you on an incredible journey through the life of Phil Robertson, giving you an intimate look into the man behind the legend and the trials, the triumphs, and the values that have shaped him through the years. While The Blind wasn't a Blaze Media production, since Phil is such a big part of our Blaze TV family, we wanted to make sure you had the opportunity to stream it right here. Because it isn't ours, we can't include it as part of the subscription. But if you'd rather purchase it and stream it here instead of Apple and Amazon, we wanted to make sure the opportunity was there. Act now. Don't miss this opportunity to own The Blind, a Phil Robertson story on Blaze TV. Buy it today at blazetv.com slash the blind for $19.99. That's blazetv.com slash the blind. This is a little into the weeds, but yeah. <laughs> uh, are you uh, are you worried at all that, that Russia and India are just gonna dump all the T-bills and blow out treasuries?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. So that's I mean,
0: that's a little bit a, a little bit intention with yeah. with keeping your money over in treasuries.
1: Well, when when you that's why I said to keep it in a short-term Shorty, yeah. treasury because then you have the opportunity to well first of all, you're keeping it to term so you're getting the yield and you're not worried Let's take a step back. So bonds and yields trade in the inverse to each other, are in the inverse to each other. So as a bond goes down in price, the yield goes up. So that's what we're talking about here. If you're in a short-term treasury for a month or two, you're going to hold that to maturity. You're going to get that, you know, annualized yield for however many months you hold it, and then you have the opportunity to say, okay, do I want to make a longer bet? Would I be at the, you know, longer end of the yield curve right now? Am I locking that money in for ten or thirty years? Absolutely not. You know, I'm not buying a, a full on, uh, you know, Treasury bond. But on the the short term side, um, I do think, you know, and then obviously if we do see a dumping uh, of bills or as we know the treasury needs to continue to finance their crazy deficits of the government so we're going to have more supply probably in the market and yields continue to go up then in a couple months if yields go up then you have the opportunity to participate and if they don't if they've gone down then you get to just go okay well I'm going to look at this again in in 2 months so that's kind of you know where i stand right now I think over periods of time, I do think that we are most likely to see Treasury yields go up. Um, The one factor that we have is war. And again, God forbid, but we get into a big world war situation, which you would think you know, going, OK, well, you know, who wants to, to get into the Treasury market? But it is historically been a, ha- a safe haven and uh, clean a shirt and laundry, skinniest kid at fat camp. So you could get more capital coming in um, and, you know, changing that dynamic. But the long term dynamic, as we talked about, who's shrinking these deficits? We're going to have if we're running multi-trillion dollar deficits every year, Who's going to finance that? Like, who in the world has enough money? Especially if central banks are buying gold and, and not loading up on treasuries, who's who's buying that? The Fed is <laughs> the only one. So past six months, um, past yeah, six
0: months, one point five trill. Uh, previous six months, about another one point five trill. Yeah, uh, this, so, is, this is gonna pop yeah, soon, right? Yeah, this is.
1: This is um, if, if you're a complete nerd like me, and you read um, the the Treasury uh, Advisory Borrowing Advisory Committee's report, you will see that they basically did the same guidance as you heard from the Fed with interest rates over the last fifteen years. Well, or with inflation. Um, you know, well, normally we would target this, but we're going to let it run a little higher. It's the same thing with the borrowing. Well, normally we would tell you to borrow, you know, for longer, but because there's no demand there, we're going to say that you should borrow, you know, more at the lower end, uh, you know, at the the short end of the yield curve. And, you know, eventually that'll normalize. But what they're basically saying is that there is no appetite, there is no demand for people to be locking up their money with the U.S. government at these very long maturities, which is going to impact borrowing costs and you know, if you think about um, the need to get more risk over time when you lock, lock up your money for longer, if you have, um, you know, any sort of increase that happens at the, the short end of the yield curve, I still think that pushes up the long end, you know, so, over time.
0: So, so where are you looking for a, a big, <laughs> clear signal? Is it bond markets, the treasuries? You talked about quantitative easing. Like, yeah. w- what's the thing that you think is going to pop that is going to make you know, people better understand what world we're living
1: in? So I th- Here's the the challenge is everybody wants that one piece of information. When this hits this, this is what's happening. Our financial system is so ridiculously complex, not just here in the U.S., but on a global basis, that you cannot just look at any one thing. You have to be looking at everything in context. So, you know, I'm focused on debt to GDP at 120% because that changes the equation we're talking about. I'm focused on de- uh, deficits at 8% of GDP, which is more than double the historical average. I'm focused on you know what's happening with the BRICS. I'm focused on how much the dollar is being used for trade and do we see any kind of fall off on that. I'm looking at the treasury bond signals. I'm looking at what the Fed does. And you know, even more and that's you know why this is so complex you know for the the average person because there are so many different things and even the people who are experts If we could tell you what was going to happen next, I'd be in a yacht on the Mediterranean right now. I would not be sitting here having this discussion. We can see these trajectories. We can see some of these signposts. And there's lots of signposts. And we just have to keep reading them and then kind of making sure we think we know what's going to happen based on that. But it's like a choose-your-own-adventure book because once you get to this signpost, there are like three or four different things that could happen that's going to change, you know, which path you end up going down here. You know, if we end up, um, you know, with a change in the administration, if we end up in you know more of a, a global world war, if there is you know a continuation of these deficit. I mean, there's so many things that impact that. You just have to stay tuned and you know be listening to people who are in the know, um, and just doing the best you can to be diversified because you know it goes back to that point. Because we don't know what's going to happen, you want to have exposure to different things. But I think um, on the the Treasury side, again, not a financial advisor, you can talk to yours, but I would be looking at shorter duration right now.
0: Just a few minutes left, I want to squeeze in one more thing to get us back to where we started with the elites, uh, the globalists. Um, Let's let's peel off the bricks chunk. So, you know, Brazil, India, China, who am I missing?
1: Brazil, Russia, India, China, China, China South, South Africa, Africa, and now- And growing. Wait, and now they've invited the fantastic ragtag group of Iran, UAE, Saudis, Argentina, Argentina, Ethiopia, and Egypt.
0: Yes, very, yes. very well done. Thank so you. the question is, <laughs> uh, is dollar dominance on its way out?
1: So I don't think dollar dom- Well, it depends on how you define dominance, right? So do we still think it's going to be Global reserve currency. So (laughs) I think it will be less of the global reserves than it is today. And I think it will be less in trade, but I don't think it goes away. And I don't think another currency supplants it. And I think that's the nuance that people- Um, again, have a hard time getting their heads wrapped around, is that we don't need the U.S. dollar to go away or to become just like 10 percent of the reserves for it to have a meaningful impact on the cost of capital and, therefore, the cost of things in our lives, particularly since that's how the government finances itself, and it means it's going to be more expensive for the government to continue to finance stuff by the way, that we've already purchased, not anything that's new, let alone anything new. Um, so I do think that the movement, the intentional movement by the BRICS, um, and if you've noted what they've done in the central banks, they haven't replaced the, the dollars as they've, they've um, drawn the, those down, with the, they've sold off their treasuries, they haven't replaced those with another currency, they replaced that with gold. And so going back to, like, you know, one of the reasons I'm bullish on precious metals is it does seem, as these things change and these fiat currencies don't work and, you know, during global cycles, that you come back to something that has a 5,000-year social contract and that many of these countries already have some stockpiles to as a way to back it. I mean, it's what the Chinese are doing right now while they're doing their oil trade, as they're saying, we want to settle in our currency, yuan, renminbi, whatever you want to call it, um, but if you have too much of those, you know, after we do our trade, that you can exchange that for gold now. And so, whether or not they kind of create their own currency backed by gold, or just use gold as a sort of quasi backer, um, and that sort of creates less of an interest in the U.S. dollar. Again, it doesn't have to be that it goes away, but as it's used for less trade, as it is used for less central bank holdings, there's less demand. And that plays into that supply demand imbalance that we're talking about and makes our cost of capital more expensive.
0: Yeah, I think this might be where the rubber hits the road. I mean, so much of what uh, the US and the West does instead of fighting wars is to use those financial levers to try to get other countries to do what they want. I think one of the things, the big lessons that we're learning right now uh, they did it to Russia. It's not really working. You know, you, there are all kinds of propaganda and everything flying around, but I think there is a lesson there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to run a sort of social credit uh, CBDC system on America uh, when that fundamental strength of the dollar as not just a, a, a reserve currency, but as a tool of, of coercion, right. when that goes away abroad. Uh, so maybe you can come back uh, at some point uh, when the dust has settled a little bit yeah. and we can unpack the uh, international financial system as it evolves in real time. We would uh, love to do that. Awesome. Until that, Until that moment, Uh, Carol Roth, thank you so much. That's all the time we've got. Um, Check out Carol's book. I've got it right here in the flesh. You will own nothing unless you read this book. Follow her on Twitter at Carol S.J. Roth. If you want more content just like, I'm sorry, (laughs) Carol J.S. Roth. That's the book. If you want more content just like this, please go to blazetv.com. Subscribe. Check out the other shows we have going on. Until next time, I am James Polis. This is Zero Hour. And may God have mercy on us all.